0: I'm Nick Anfield with the Sydney Centre for Language Research and the Department of Linguistics at the University of Sydney and I'm talking today to Mark Post, also in the Department of Linguistics and in the Centre. Hi Mark. How are you doing, Nick? Good. Great to have you here uh, and very interested to talk to you today about the work that you're doing, the multifaceted work that you're doing in northeast India uh, an area where you've been working for a long time. that's so 15 years. Yeah, so um, can I just start by asking you to tell us about the northeast India area in terms of what's there, what's the linguistic situation there, why is it an interesting place to work?
1: Yeah, sure. So northeast India is a pretty interesting place in the mainland Asian context. Um, because it really just took shape when all the stuff that wasn't tied down was finally tied down in the post-war period after Indian independence. So you had a lot of areas that had previously been sort of autonomous indigenous areas, um, and in some cases very small states like Manipur, um, that had been sort of doing their thing for hundreds and thousands of years and suddenly needed to be part of a nation. Um, borders didn't previously um, exist as such um, and now needed to be put down and as linear um, items on a map. Um, and Northeast India sort of took shape um, initially as a set of territories that were loosely administered, and now they're um, sort of a set of fully functioning Indian states that are um, incredibly diverse, even by Indian standards, which is saying a lot. Um, India is certainly the most ethno-linguistically diverse um, country in in Asia, and one of the most diverse in the world. And even by Indian standards, the Northeast is just off the charts with diversity.
0: So, can you just uh, b- before you continue, just mm. I- clarify for people exactly what area you mean when you talk about Northeast India?
1: So, if you look at a map, there's a part that you never noticed before was part of India, and it's that part in the Northeast. Um, it's uh, just to the south of Tibet, to the east of Bhutan, um, just to the sort of north northeast of Bangladesh, um, to the west of Burma, and uh, most of India is, of course, to the west um, and to the south of the northeast. Um, so the states, there's um, uh, the, the state that I work in mostly is uh, called Arunachal Pradesh. Um, there, Assam is well known for tea and other things. Um, Meghalaya, Nagaland, Manipur, Mizoram um, these are some of the other states Uh, these are not places I work Um, uh, Arunachal Pradesh is to me the most interesting of all of course um, because that's where I chose to work um, because uh, of the sheer diversity even by northeast Indian standards Um, there's an an incredible number of languages spoken there we don't know how many um, certainly at least 50 um, probably something uh, higher than that um, and they're phylogenetically very, or let's say genealogically, very different from one another. Um, they seem to all be trans himalayan or Sino-Tibetan um, in some sense, but um, very, very different even within that context. And so this is fascinating to think about how this sort of diversity came about
0: and was maintained apparently over such a long period of time up to the present day. So when you say there's 50 languages or maybe more, um, and they're genealogically very different, you know, it's always hard to... Put a finger on this kind of difference and be very precise about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have the same situation when I talk about the number of languages in Laos. If you had to kind of try to communicate those differences to people, would you be comparing them to, let's say, you know, are they as different as the well-known European languages are different from each other? You know, among those 50 languages, are we talking about you know Russian, French, English, Swedish, or are we talking about bigger differences than that? Um,
1: that's hard to say because, of course, we'd be talking about different kinds of differences, so, um, it's hard to say how relatively different different kinds of differences are. Um, but, yeah, in terms of mutual intelligibility, um, I don't know, we might be talking about something about, uh, something like English and Russian in some cases, in some cases it'd be more like English and Hindi. Um, so, you know, where you can recognize certain words, you can recognize the numeral three, you can recognize the word for person, you can recognize... Uh, the word for fish or the numeral five, things like that. Um, but other than that, I, and, you know, that's that's sort of like if, w- if we explain to somebody that the Sanskrit word for brother is very similar to the English word for brother, that's fascinating, but you would never notice it in conversation. Uh, that's the scale of difference that we're talking about
0: here. So these uh, groups of people that speak these 50 or so languages, you know, I understand it's a mountainous area. Yes. They, are they in close communication are they separated by the environmental uh, situation what's their kind of interaction like across those groups
1: yeah so um, that's of course changed quite a bit in recent years with national integration now everybody um, is speaking Hindi and so um, now that's how everybody speaks right Um, traditionally that wasn't the case and one of the things that we find very interesting is trying to sort of reconstruct how communication patterns might have been uh, based on what we understand uh, about social relationships in the old days. And what we find is a bit surprising, um, to me at least, in that you can have groups that are very close together as the crow flies that seem to have had little Um, interaction in earlier times, and there's just no evidence whatsoever that their languages mutually influenced one another. That I find very surprising. In other cases, um, you find very close relationships uh, between populations um, whose languages probably initially started out quite different, but did actually converge over time. So um, understanding how the environment and how social relationships sort of shaped these uh, opportunities and shaped the resulting language structures is really a fascinating uh, aspect of what we're trying to do. It's also very hard to reconstruct um, these things in the absence of any sort of written records. But
0: um, in some cases, you can do it just by looking at um, layering in the language. So can you just, I mean, we'll get into talking about what the language is like. Sure. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in this issue of the connections between the groups and the environment that they're living in. So. Mountains, mountains have rivers. rivers. Uh, you yep. know, we've got mountains; the, all the water runs down, and yep. you have got rivers in between them. And so, you know, I work in uh, in Laos, as you know, and it's not as mountainous in the area where I work, but it's the same type of situation. Yep. And I'm also fascinated by the fact that certain groups don't seem to interact. in my, In my area, there, I, I work with a group of people who are, who speak a uh, uh, Vietic language and, you know, um, it's, it's a rather small group. And in the next valley, there's a, there are other people who speak Vietic mm-hmm. languages. Uh, and the group that I work with, uh, they refer to themselves as Cree. They don't ever go and hang out with those other Vietic-speaking people, even though they're just sort of like half a day's walk away. Okay. But they spend all their time t- hanging out, uh, associating with, talking with people from other ethnic groups who are relatively new to the area, um, you know they 're not speaking loud but they 're speaking each other 's uh, languages, so they have very intensive kind of commitment to these communities that are that are ethnically really rather different, and they have seemingly very little interest it 's not that they have zero interest, but they you know the fact is they don 't go and, 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 and meet and associate with other groups yeah. who are who are historically very much more closely related yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, so is, is, does this kind of at all resemble the kind of thing that you you, that you see? Uh,
1: it, in some ways, yes. I mean, I can think of parallels like that. Um, I don't know how um, well it would characterize, um, or how well I'd be able to characterize the whole area in this term, but in these terms, but certainly cases like that are there. I, I, I find well, the gallows uh, are a good example of, for example, uh, a, a, well, they're a Western Tani uh, group that. Um, has really nothing to do with other Western Tani peoples, and uh, on the contrary, they've been sort of leaning towards the Eastern Tani populations, and have had lots of interrelations, intermarriages, and so on. And that seems to be going on for centuries, and has changed the structure of the Galla language, um, uh, well, noticeably. Uh, mm. So there's been certain convergence, and more or less in different dialects, um, to this Eastern Tani size, So much so that the, the classification of Galla is actually a bit difficult. Um, So that sort of thing is is certainly there, and yes, you you wonder why, (laughs) when I know that these languages are genealogically very close, there's no relationships between these two groups, and that's just how the social contracts evolved over
0: time. Yeah, the the detail that I left out, I guess, of what I was saying was that the the two Vietic groups uh, that I was speaking about are are in separate valleys. Okay. They're yeah. not far at all as the crow flies, yeah. but they're in separate valleys. Yeah. Whereas the groups that, that the Cree do spend all their time um, with are along the same river, yeah. in the same valley. So sure. um, you know that that would be like one very obvious kind of environmental yeah. Yeah. Um, factor involved in all of this. And yeah. I you know That's I think right. I think we'll get to to those questions in a, yeah. in, a in a little bit um, before we start talking about like what you're you're working on. Um, sort of broadly about the Northeast India area, you've been involved for a long time in the collective linguistic research going on in the Northeast India area with the Northeast India Linguistic Society and working with colleagues internationally and in Northeast India on, on doing research on these languages. So can you tell us a bit about the Northeast India Linguistic Society?
1: Sure. So um, this was started by um, uh, Professor Jyoti Prakash Tamuli um, of Guwahati University and myself, um, later joined by Stephen Morey back in 2005, I think it was. Um, and uh, we started it because we just thought it was in- incredible that uh, we <laughs> were sort of two of three or four people that we knew of that were working on. Uh, what we knew to be um, fascinating languages in a fascinating part of the world, and we just thought, I mean, once once we let other people know about this, there's going to be tons of people who want to do this. And so, uh, we we started the Northeast Indian Linguistic Society to try to bring together people who were working on Northeast Indian languages, but um, importantly, both uh, within India and um, outside India, because these um, two um, uh, groups of researchers had not previously interacted very much. Um, So we tried to provide a platform for that interaction and also to encourage more work um, uh, uh, on the languages and also to publicize work that was going on um, on the languages and so that was very successful. I mean, the first conference that we uh, organized, sort of imagining that it would be just uh, us and whoever else happened to be on field work at the time, um, you know, was attended by 30 or 40 people and uh, we published a book out of that Um, So it became an annual and then a biannual event uh, that, you know, uh, eventually started attracting two, three hundred people um, to conferences and uh, the books are still um, being published. So um, that was successful. And uh, another thing that we tried to do as part of that was develop um, capacity building workshops to uh, address the fact that there just is not that much in the way of resources in that particular part of India. There is in other parts of India, but not in that particular part of India, for training in language description, and that was what people really wanted to do—language documentation and description. So, um, I've been focusing most of my energy on that aspect of um, of what we started doing uh, since that time.
0: Mm, okay, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll sure. come to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one thing I'd like to ask is the—you know—the accessibility of the area. So, you know, it's an area that people don't necessarily know about, right. um, you know, as you pointed out, a lot of people wouldn't even kind of remember having seen that kind of triangle on yeah. the map yeah. um, and there's a question of its remoteness obviously because it's far from any kind of obvious centre so it's just physically remote and mountainous being difficult to, to access but there are other kind of issues with, with getting access to the area and working in the area, so what yeah. what what is the situation with You know, let's say suddenly um, thousands of people became excited about going and um, and working in the area. Would that even be possible? What are the constraints on on doing work in this part of the world?
1: That's a good question. Um, This is a a very sort of fluid state of affairs. Um, Historically, this has been a restive region. Um, That's not the case right now, but that doesn't mean that every place is open for research. Restive. Um, Restive. Um, not in this m- particular area that I work in, although that has been invaded once by China. Um, but leaving that aside, um, there hasn't been any insurgencies, local um, militia-type activities. Um, in some of the other states, there have. In, uh, in Assam, which is the most accessible state, um, there was something approaching a civil war um, going on for 20, 30 years after Indian independence in when I started working there, it was just sort of on the tail end of that, so you could still, there were periodic bomb blasts and you'd have to be on buses where um, everybody was searched by police and that sort of thing, minor travelers' uh, inconveniences. Um, that has cleared cleared up, um, for the most part, I think it's, it's possible to say that um, this is one of the safest places now that I've ever um, spent time in. Um, in terms of permission, yeah, not so easy. Um, in India, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not always um, a straightforward uh, thing to request official permission and then go through the channels and, and get it. Uh, usually you have to be more strategic. Um, and it's hard for people to understand that without going through everything, and that takes a lot of time. So you're right. It's not the sort of place that people can just easily walk up and say, here I am. I'm a researcher. Let me start working. Uh, That could easily go south. Um, But we try to facilitate um, uh, research, um, how should I say, um, feasibility um, with the connections that we have. Um, When I hear about people who want to work in such and such a place, um, I've been able to um, sometimes help put them in touch with the people they need to know to get that started. And um, there have been um, quite a few successful projects um, that have uh, started and been completed since the time I've uh, you know, started my work. So it's certainly increasing. Everybody has a difficult time, but nobody seems to regret it. I mean, it's an incredible place to work.
0: Right. So let's turn to some of the work you've been doing. The work that you mentioned to me that you, you've done recently is about topographical deuses, mm. Um which you know might not everybody might know um, the meaning of, just off the top of their heads, many will, but uh, perhaps you can tell us about that work and, and what it's about and what you found.
1: Sure. So in a nutshell, um, we can think about it this way. So in some languages, if I want to say that chair... Um, it doesn't matter where the chair is. As long as it's relatively far from me and maybe also from you, I can say that. It doesn't matter if it's up there or down there. If I want to, I can say down there. I don't have to say down there. I can just say that, right? Um, But in other languages, um, you can't just say that. You have to commit if it's far away from you. You have to commit to a decision whether it's up there or down there or on the same topographical level. In other languages, that's upriver, downriver, or not along the river course, something like that. Um, But that's the type of uh, system that we're talking about. It's a grammaticalized system that forces you to commit to the relative uh, topographical location of um, the object or the trajectory
0: that you're talking about. So just to clarify, so (coughs) in English, we've got this little system with two words, this This and and that. And and, um, when people describe that, they... I know it's complex, but um, a simple way of putting it would be, well, if, a, if an object is not near you, you might say this chair far away, you might say that chair. And you're saying that in these other systems, it's not just whether it's near you or far away from you, it's also whether it's above and below uh, in some sense. So you Above, uh,
1: below, or on the same
0: topographical level. I see. Yeah. So that would be a system with, y- instead of having just two like this, that, you'd have three, or you'd have four, or some other number. Or so five. you'd
1: usually have this, and sometimes there's two thises, but um, you'd have a this, and you'd have three that's.
0: Okay, good. So yeah. are this, uh, a that, a that up there, and a that down there. And a that on the same topographical level. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and in some languages, you also get it in verbs. So you can't simply say go, you have to say go down, or go up, or go on the same topographical level. Um uh, we also get it in another, is the grammar as well. Um, but uh, that's the that's the um, the core of the system is this sort of three three way distinction. So what we find um, with overwhelming frequency is um, not um, that surprising, but you know still it's nice to find it as an empirical finding, right? Um, that these systems are found in montane languages. So they're found in um, uh, certain areas of the world in the Caucasus. They're found. Uh, They're found in uh, the Andes, they're found in um, far north Queensland, and they're found in the Himalayas. Um, There might be one or two things I'm leaving out, but those are the um, sort of greatest hits. And so, yeah, not surprising that we find them in montane languages, but still fantastic and interesting that we do find them in montane languages because it shows that there is a clear correlation, at least, between this particular type of grammatical organization and this particular type of landscape.
0: So when you say montane languages, you mean languages spoken in mountainous regions. That's right, yeah. um, so can just to back up, I mean, in terms of the project that you're actually doing, you 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 you're suggesting or you're alluding to the fact that a number of languages have this type of system. Mm-hmm. So have you if you, you've been surveying a large number of languages, like which yeah. what languages have you been looking at and how have you been doing this work?
1: So I've mostly been looking at um, uh, languages in um, the what I'll call the Trans-Himalayan region. Um, so the most in-depth work that I've done is in the area that I work on, the Dani languages that I work on um, in Arunachal Pradesh. But recently, I uh, finished a, a study um, that, that surveys, um, well, as many languages as I was able to survey in the Trans-Himalayan family, also known as Sino-Tibetan. So this research is um, now in press in diachronica. And I um, so I've, I, I, I looked in grammars, I looked in existing descriptions, and when I didn't find that, I you know emailed the researchers and asked them for the data. Um, so I, I got everything that I could, and um, what I found was that uh, you know again not surprisingly, um, the trans-Himalayan languages that have topo- grammaticalized uh, closed-class topographical dices are um, almost all spoken in mountains. If they're not currently spoken in mountains, they are easily traceable to um, an ancestor which was spoken in mountains. Um, And those that don't, not surprisingly, um, are usually spoken in plains areas. If they're not spoken in plains areas, there's usually another explanation. Uh, In the case of one language, uh, Garo, which um, is spoken in the hills, Um, we know used to be spoken in the plains because its reconstructible ancestor is spoken in the plains. And um, basically, we we know that that was the trajectory of of migration and movement. Um, Another factor that we found was um, uh, what I'll call cosmopolitanism. Um, So when languages become these sort of large cosmopolitan languages and or in contact with a large cosmopolitan language, they tend to lose the, uh, the system
0: as well so you you just to clarify what you were saying earlier the the you 've got the mountain languages and um you're comparing them to the plains languages and saying you know when it 's a plain language it's going to lack these up down to they typically of,
1: uh, lose it within one or two generations
0: okay so that 's what I wanted to clarify yeah. you you're suggesting
1: that they get lost they get lost okay well, this is potentially uh controversial um, this is one of the um one of the weaker findings of the survey is that it's, it's likely, in my view, that this system reconstructs very deeply within trans himalayan I can't say with certainty that the, uh, the proto-language um, had it, uh, because we don't know how the higher level gene- genealogical relationships are, are work- uh, uh, can be worked out yet, but it's quite clear that it reconstructs to a deep, in my view, that it reconstructs to a deep level within the family, mm-hmm. All right. Um, so if that's the case, and then we find that um, uh, daughter languages or daughter subgroups um, that reconstructed the same ancestor uh, don't have it, then it follows that they lost it. Um, so uh, in support of this, we can find observable cases of loss in uh, recent history. So one thing that was very interesting was to look at Stephen Morey's work on Singpa and also some other work um, that's going on on Jingpa dialects at the moment um, in Zurich. Um, So it's quite clear that uh, the Jingpa language has it. Uh, Singpa, which shifted to the uh, plains some number of generations ago, uh, seems to have lost it, although it's retained a little bit in ritual speech. Okay, so we can reconstruct that trajectory. Then I hear from this fellow who's working on um, lowland Jingpa dialects and he tells me that um, speakers who have been there in the plains for one or two generations simply don't know about this. Okay, so it gets lost like that. Um, If there's no environmental anchor to sustain it, um, the system just falls out of use.
0: Okay, I find this really fascinating because, you know, on the one hand, I know exactly what you mean, right? So we're not in the mountains anymore. Uh, I'm not constantly kind of concerned with whether something is up or down, but then I think, hang on a second. I don't live in the mountains, but I'm constantly dealing with something's being down and something's being up. Right? Something's on the top shelf in the yeah. uh, of a bookcase. Something's higher sure. up in the fridge rather than yeah. down low. You know, I'm actually, my life is constantly orienting to things that are down versus things that are up. So. Sure. Why would I lose that? If I had that neat little thing in my language pointing to up and down with the the demonstratives, why would I lose it?
1: I can't answer that. That's a a very good question. And I think that the only way to really answer that is to observe how the system does get lost. And I think that that could be done in principle. We just need to find the right um, field situation in which that's happening in real time. If I'm going to speculate... Um, look, it just has to do with frequency and salience of the environmental anchors. So uh, when you're outdoors, which you typically are in the eastern Himalaya, um, which is, you know, the, the side of the Himalaya that I work in, um, you, the, 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 the sloping topography is inescapable. Um, absolutely every referent, absolutely every movement is located somewhere in, in one of these easily discernible trajectories, one of these inescapable trajectories, Right. So your, your perpetual awareness of um, these, these vectors that the environment gives you uh, is, is very salient somehow. And then the frequency of use is, is presumably what grammaticalizes the system to start with and then sustains it. Mm. This is just speculation because I haven't done the study, but uh, it, it seems to me it has to be something like this because I've seen the outcome. So another thing I could mention is um, apatani is a very interesting language. Apatani is spoken in the mountains, but it's spoken in a plateau. Um, it's spoken in a plateau, which is um, incredibly flat and surrounded by hills, which people use to plant bamboo forests and harvest um, you know, bamboo and whatever, but they don't, they don't have their fields there, unlike most of the groups in this area. They're not hillside agriculturalists. They're wet rice agriculturalists. So, um, and then the hills uh, beyond that are surrounded by a tribe that has historically not always been on good terms with them. Um, So the Apatani exclusively inhabit this flatland plateau. They don't have it.
0: Mm, I see. So somehow their environment is not requiring them or sort of encouraging them to make this distinction. Mm, Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I see what you mean about wanting to have data uh, about the loss of the terms in real time, and that's, of course, one of the most difficult things to get is real-time language change, although we know better these days how to, how to study that. Uh, I guess the other thing that would be good to have more information about would, would be just real contextual usage of those particular sure. types of terms. Yeah. So if it turned out that people generally tend to use the, the, these up-down demonstratives for, you know, literally for things that are on mountaintops or up the h- end of the stream, uh, more often than they did for things around the household, well, that would be good to know. Um, we don't always have... We, 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 we often have impressions or intuitions about that, um, but we don't often have good empirical...
1: So when... Data. This is something that I can answer to some extent. Um, so uh, in systems that are fully fledged, that are, you know, fully functioning, um, so like in Golo, for example, um, people use them all the time. So I did these, um, you know... Um, Uh, Max Planck style um, picture matching um, tasks, right? And so these are very tiny little uh, configurations of objects on a table um, with a photograph associated. Um, So, yeah, nothing remotely mountainous about the Task at hand, um, nothing even that distal about it. So this it.
0: is a task where people have to describe a layout, like a tree yeah. is in front of a man, <coughs> or that's a right. something. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Although in my case it was, um, you know, little objects, feathers and rocks and things like that. But um, that sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. People use it in that case as well, all the time.
0: Right. So that's uh, what some people would call tabletop space, in a sense that they c- somehow can transpose that um, that environmental mm-hmm. system. To, to a little local system. So you, you mentioned that when people speak a language that's lost these terms and then they move back to a, a kind of a mountainous area, they it don't... It takes more time. What happens? Do they get it back? Do they so
1: some it? of them seem to. So uh, we've got um, these Kukichin languages, and, and the only reason I can say that they, they got it back is because they they have a different system now. They have uh, a system with non cognate Forms that are in a different position. Um, so it's clearly a new uh, system morphologically. Um, you know, I, can, I, can I say that the system was completely lost and then renovated? No, I can't say that. Um, but uh, the system was renovated somehow. Um, in in case, so you know, possibly if those uh, if the ancestors of Kuki-chin speakers may have inhabited the lowlands at some point, who knows, um, and then came to be in the hills again. Uh, that could have been the context in which they got the system again, or maybe ne- they never left and they got it again for another reason. But in cases that we know uh, that people were in the plains and lost it, and then went back up into the hills, um, I am not aware of a case in which um, it's been renovated. So, and this is so Garo's been in the hills for hundreds of years, mm. and uh, the system has not come back.
0: So, do these systems get? stigmatized in any way so you know it's kind of it might seem strange right but but i'll tell you why i'm asking about this so in the area that i work in laos there are two dialects of this language Cree. Mm. and the one that i've worked most on has five of these demonstratives. right it's got a this a that a a yon, type one and then it has one for up and one for down Mm. pretty similar to the kind of systems that you're talking about in this other dialect, which I recently did a field trip um, where I was working exclusively on that one, they lack the up and down terms. Mm-hmm. They live in the same river system, it's a similar environment, nothing really different about the environment, except they live downstream. Mm-hmm. They live a bit further downstream, and the other thing is that they're more in more kind of close contact with other ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. So the Cree are sort of way up the top of the river and they're more isolated and they're kind of regarded as being um, somehow less worldly, less sophisticated and so on. And uh, in the work that I did where I was trying to probe the differences between these dialects, people who spoke the downstream dialect kind of, it's one of the things that they would cite to sort of say, well, they're different from us because they say those two words, the the up... And and the downward. And they weren't, uh, when I say stigmatized, I don't really mean that they were the butt of jokes because of it, but they kind of were. There was a sense in which, well, that was, people would sort of put on a slight wry smile when when they would, for example, hear in recordings those Mm. words being used, that that was sort of the kind of word they might imitate if they were trying to imitate someone from that uh, upstream uh community so Mm. is there any sense do you think in which that kind of stigmatization of dialect difference could could play a role here
1: oh look i haven't noticed it um i wouldn't i wouldn't rule it out but i I haven't uh, certainly things like that do occur um uh, with other sorts of um uh, flags or cues um i I haven't i haven't noticed it in the groups that i work with
0: so i wonder whether it might be related to and uh, and this leads to something i'd like to hear more about you mentioned this idea of cosmopolitanism, hmm. uh, and you know, which I take to mean you know being connectedness connected yeah, yeah to other kind of groups to be more you know joined into the kind mm-hmm. of global networks and and um, uh, y- you know p- perhaps the more connected to the government more connected to the the outside world and perhaps in some sense. Um, I wonder if you think, like, why you think cosmopolitanism, as such, kind of has this effect. Look,
1: um, uh, it might not even be cosmopolitanism as such. It might be, um, it might be just uh, an outcome of another factor, which is that you can't get enormous populations unless you have a relatively large plains area. Right? You, You, you really, I mean, with with some some exceptions, and depending on how you define enormous. Um, let, let's just say that if you if you have an area which is relatively connected without major geographical ob- or topographical obstacles you know, you're more likely to get a larger population you're more likely to get um, access to more agricultural land nearby that sort of thing so I think these things kind of reinforce one another if uh, I, I'm not aware of a, of a single case or I'm not aware of a case in which um, you have a large population in a Completely mont- mountainous environment, and somehow they're able to get their food all the same, um, uh, and and uh, and you get this loss. I'm not aware of a case like that. the The closest example I could think of is is Noir, which is spoken in the Kathmandu Valley. That's still a valley; um, it's still pretty hilly. Um, Noir doesn't have it, and they've been in contact with Indo-Aryan for ages, um, hundreds of years. Is uh, is
0: it could it be part of a general tendency? So. I mean, there is an observation that's been made that there are differences between languages that are spoken by large populations and languages that are spoken by small populations. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what uh, accounts for that. Mm. You just suggested that size of population might correlate with the environment they live in. Absolutely. Um, Mm. And then there are other possibilities like, you know, the number of people who are learning that language as a second language, yeah, that's right. um, other kinds of factors. So one observation has been in terms of demonstrative systems of the kind we're talking about here, this, do you have two terms, this and that, do you have three terms, this, that, and yon, mm-hmm. do you have four, do mm-hmm. you have five? Um, I think the observation's been made that if a, yeah. if a language has five different demonstratives, you can, you can bet, you should bet, that it's going to have a smaller population yeah. than a language that only has two or three. Yeah. Um, look, I, I mean, I, I don't want to
1: make any strong, uh, draw, to draw any s- strong uh, conclusions from this, but I would think that if you have a smaller population, that population is going to be more sensitive to this... Um, uh, the salience of a particular type of environmental factor. Okay, So they might be clustered around a river. They might be um, in a particular you know, mountainous environment. Um, uh, it might be uh, um, uh, on an island where the wind blows in a particular direction very saliently. Um, uh, I, I think it's likely to be that. When you have a population that grows to a certain size, you're going to have a diversity of landscape features um, just by virtue of what the environment you know gives to us there there might be exceptions but i think that's going to be the overall correlation
0: right okay that's really interesting so a particular type of environment is no longer going to be in the common ground of the entire population that's that's a good way of putting it yeah it won't get drawn on um so maybe before we move on to 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 your more specific work on on galo language Mm. um The thing we've been talking about with these up-down demonstrative words and and their relationship to, you know, the fact that they get lost in the plains uh, points to this whole idea of what you call montane languages and languages that are spoken in mountain areas. Is there something about mountain languages? Are there other things that mountain languages uh, have associated with them? I mean, uh, so I'd be interested if you could comment on that and maybe more generally on whether there are other types of associations uh, that that get made in linguistics about you know the relationship between language structure and the environment they're spoken in like like along rivers or or something else yeah well um,
1: I don't I, I don't know if I should um, think of myself as an expert in this area because uh, you know, a lot of a lot of work, as you say, has been done, and there have been claims that um, you know there uh, there are certain linguistic features that are more likely past certain altitudes, and the suggestion has been that there's something about the um, you know, the, the atmosphere and how our physiology interacts with the atmosphere at that altitude that can bias. I'm not sure about that. Um, I'm not sure if the Sample set really um, forces us to this conclusion, um, but there's I, I guess there's basically two ways I would look at this. There's um, there's what the mountains or uh, there's what the environment itself yields to you, and how you're able to interact with that environment, and, and what's salient to you in terms of that environment. That experience might. Uh, shape your um, language um, to some extent, and that's, I think, what we're seeing in in the type of system we've been talking about. Then there's the social dimension of it. Um, The fact of being in mountains is going to bias you towards having uh, small groups that are not in regular contact because traveling is just very difficult. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of effort. and So you're going to um, have certain types of um, social relationships that are structured in a particular way because of that, and that in turn uh, leads to communication, it's going to bias your communication in a a particular way, and and that will have its own effects. These are sort of indirect, I guess. Um, So I would distinguish those very carefully before I started making generalizations, because they're really kind of different, um, different routes to explanation, different different, um, types of cause. So the second type of uh, cause, I think we can find lots of um, evidence for. The first type of cause, which is the type of, Cause that underlies these topographical dixie systems, I think. Um, yeah, I, I don't find so many examples of that. Um, this is a really good one, but I don't find so many of them. Um, but the types of um, social structure and the and the the effects of la- and communication patterns that result from that, and the and the, the um, uh, effects on language, um, th- uh, that sort of thing, I think we find a lot of, and that's that's a very interesting part of our ongoing work. Yeah. Mm.
0: Good. So perhaps we can move on to the Galo uh, project, um, which is more specific uh, in one sense because it's about one language, um, but it's much richer in another sense in that it's about one language. <laughs> uh, so can you tell us about this project and where you're at with it?
1: So Galo is um, endlessly fascinating to me and, and, and incredibly difficult. Um, I mean, I've been working on this language since, my PhD, since I started my PhD and um, without getting into my reasoning for why I chose it, the reason I've stayed with it is just because of um, the richness of it. And okay, I mean, every language is rich in, in some way, but um, what I've found particularly fascinating about uh, Gallo is um, the extraordinary history that it's had and the, the, um, the effects on uh, its structure. Um, as an outcome of these things. Um, so I mentioned earlier that in our conversation that um, Gallo is a sort of Western Thani language that has converged towards the Eastern type. Um, and we see a lot of uh, uh, we see a lot of interesting changes to the structure of Gallo um, associated with that. Um, you know, obvious things like lexical borrowings and, um, and to some extent grammatical borrowings, um, but also prosodic change and the changes that that has brought about in grammatical structure, um, all kinds of things. Um, uh, All kinds of layers exist that make the analysis of Gullah language particularly challenging, because if you don't understand where these layers are coming from, uh, the language can start to seem unsatisfyingly complex. (laughs) Unsatisfyingly complex in the sense that you can't work out why it is that way. so uh, the challenge of of unraveling these layers and the challenge of of um, uh, retracing the steps that the Gallo language has taken over the past few centuries has, has really been what's sustained my interest in in Gallo up to the present day. Um, another thing that's sustained my interest is the people that I'm working with um, i've I've found Gallo people to be um, extraordinarily enthusiastic about their language and um, what it is now where it's going how it's changing um what they can do about it um uh, you know very active in um in their use of the language and, and, in, and in thinking about their use of the language and what they can do as a community um so i never intended to do any sort of um you know language maintenance or revitalization work at all in fact i i, I went into this project thinking that that was a mistake uh, to do anything like that or to to plan to do anything like that to to come from the beginning with this mindset of wanting to bring about social changes in a place that you don't belong to, this was anathema to me. Um, I wanted to get in there and simply um, be a fly on the wall and describe it and then whatever people did with that was up to them. Um, mm-hmm. If they did nothing with it, then you know it's a shame, but <laughs> I mean, it's life. Um, and it really wasn't until I had already been there for three years and could speak the language and knew people pretty well and, and um, and start to started to develop an understanding that there were things they wanted to do and there were obstacles in their way and that we could do something about that, that I sort of started thinking, well, okay, I can maybe think about this in a different way uh, now that I have these, um, these uh, community members who are going to be collaborating with me, not only collaborating with me, but actually, you know, directing the... the um, course of events in some cases so they wanted an orthography that worked they didn't have one and it pissed them off i mean they they were dissatisfied and when i say they i mean every individual person that i talked to in addition to um uh the um, language development organization that was eventually formed Um, uh, they wanted an orthography that would enable them to write their language accurately so that they could um, Make a dictionary so that they could make textbooks, so that they could write down stories, and, and so that they could send emails and text messages because mobile phones started uh, spreading at exactly the time that I was finishing up my PhD, you know, and they wanted to send text messages, and it was frustrating. Mm-hmm. So we sat down and we tried to work out an orthography, and um, fortunately, I knew the phonology at that point, and so that was pretty easy to do. Um, the tone system is still challenging, but the segmental orthography is pretty okay. Um, and so, since that time, they've been doing amazing things. Um, they've, they've. When I say they, I mean you know, community organizations and also individuals. I get 400 text, m- well, WhatsApp messages a day in Gallo now. I can't read them all, <laughs> but I know they're there. <laughs> wow. um, and that did not exist before.
0: So they're using Facebook too. I'm told.
1: Okay. I'm not personally connected, but I'm told that there are various. Um, Facebook sites or whatever they're called <laughs> developed uh, specifically to deal with Gullah language and presumably people are just communicating um, you know, one on one using Gullah as well
0: Right, that's amazing So mm. w- what's the population of speakers?
1: Well we don't know and we also don't know where the boundary is between Gullah and other languages but um, you know, I could put a n- number anywhere between say 40 and 60,000 something like that um, So it's a lot of people Yeah mm. um, but some of those people, well, okay, I mean, that's, that's, that's a big range, right? And so um, within that, there's going to be semi-speakers, and there's going to be people who are ethnically Gallo but might not speak Gallo. There's going to be people who are speaking a language which is um, considered Gallo because they have Gallo ethnicity, but I wouldn't be able to understand it, and I've certainly met people like that. Um, yeah, uh, so it's r- it's not necessarily clear what the, f- what the ultimate number is, but mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be something like that.
0: Yeah, okay, so so far you've emphasized the, um, uh, the production of an orthography and the impact of that and the fact that, uh, you know, the community are very much engaged with that. But that's not at all your, um, you know, the bulk of your work that you've been mm-hmm. doing. So y- can you tell us about the larger... You know, or the yeah, the depths uh, as it were, the breadth and depth of the project in in in, in linguistics terms. Wha- in linguistic terms, what I- what are the goals yeah. that you've got?
1: Uh, well, the goals are to do everything, um, and just well, that's just that to mean? do as much yes. as I can. Um, so uh, the 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 um, the keystone, I guess, is the descriptive grammar, right? That I um, that I wrote as my PhD, and that I'm uh, hopefully <laughs> going to publish this year or early next um it's it's um you know the, one of the problems i have is trying to uh, understand everything before um i say that i'm done um and there are still some challenges but um, so i
0: trust you tell your students do as i say not as i do uh or i hope to, i hope you do yeah i hope i do too
1: um something like that um so uh the, the, the grammar is, is, is the core of it, um, but you know grammar um, broadly construed. I mean, it includes an understanding of how the lexicon works, how the phonology works, um, how um, things distribute in discourse, and um, so it's not just a set of phrase structure rules, right? Um, so this this I, I think this is... The, the grammar of Gaul is fairly um, well understood now. I mean, there are certain, certain dimensions of it that certainly uh, still need work, like the egophoricity system, I think, is something that... Um, still needs still needs work. Um, Yankee has been uh, doing uh, work in that area that's influenced me a lot and realized made me realize that I was um, seeing things a bit wrong um, previously. So uh, those kinds of things are there. But beyond that, um, there's an extraordinary number of things uh, to be done that we're doing um, gradually and slowly um, to do with uh, dialect. Um, uh, um, differences um, in in grammar and phonology, um, and just collecting the incredible amount of vocabulary that exists and is known about, um, trying to build the Gallo Gallo English Dictionary. Um, Gallo ritual language is something that I've been trying to work on, and that's another vast area. I wish I could get um, like-minded anthropologists to do something with that. but the the grammar has been what holds it, sort of anchors it
0: all, and holds it all together for me as a linguist. And, um, yeah. So, from the point of view of grammars and what they're like, and mm. you know how much detail they have, and how big they are, and so on, um, b- but also perhaps um, from the point of view of just what the grammar of this particular language is like. How do you mm. see Carlo fitting into? Um, typology yeah. you know, the, and the linguistic knowledge of what a language can be like on earth?
1: So this is, um, <laughs> everybody I suppose should, should have a compelling story for why they started to do something and um, I mean this is only compelling from the point of view of another linguist I think, but this is why I started working on Gallo actually, was was um, was this central question that um, at least I uh, went through all of my linguistic preparation, um, hearing and thinking about, which is um, uh, how, how can it be that languages are so incredibly similar and yet so incredibly different? How can we explain these simultaneously great typological similarities and differences? You know, we get we get so many languages that grammaticalize subject, but then we get uh, languages that are very different and have ergative pivots. And um, so, how do we you know, can we come up with a common framework that? Explains all of this stuff and doesn't just explain away the differences as as these you know minor parameter variations or whatever. Um, and yeah, I think um, it is possible to um, approach uh, the the analysis and ultimately explanation of language in a way that that satisfyingly explains these some similarities and differences uh, through through a common framework. And my interest in I can talk about what that is in a second, but my interest in Gallo. Uh, started out as um, a a, a feeling that the Gallo language would um, give me more mileage than a lot of other languages might in uh, helping me to develop this kind of explanatory framework. Because I could see in this, I mean, as soon as I started working on Gallo and its associated languages, its its related languages, um, I could see um, the history of a language that used to be a mainland Southeast Asian language its ancestor was, whatever. Um, And something happened. And it started developing this more agglutinative profile. And it just really looked to me, and I've said this several times before, but I'll say it again, it looked to me like speakers of a Southeast Asian language just started walking in the mud. And everything just started glomming together. Um, And uh, we started getting these categories, these grammatical categories that one didn't have names for; um, they were these, uh, you know, halfway house sort of uh, categories that um, you could analyze as similar to what you found in entire or you could analyze as completely different and similar to what you found in Indo-Aryan languages. And the reality is they were exactly in between, um, and just because like, they've uh, been changing.
0: Just like the languages geographically in between. Just like the languages geographically in between. Isn't that interesting? Mm. So when you say mileage, um, you know. W- one way to put it would be, you know, they gave the language gives you as an individual mileage in terms of, in a sense, the kind of payoff um, of, of studying it. You know, there's many things come out for you to kind of explore and, and problems to solve. Do you think the same is true in terms of mileage for the scientific record, essentially? So, you know... Um, if we know nothing about a domain, you know, let's say we're studying butterflies or we're studying, you know, languages or anything that you might want to study. Um, if you know nothing about the domain, then any specimen that comes along is going to be hugely informative. Sure. Uh, but after a while, you know, you kind of seen this before, you have kind of seen that before. Mm. So, you know, over time, I guess in the history of linguistics, we've seen breakthroughs where a language has been studied or been analyzed that that has properties that haven't been seen before that haven't been taken into account mm. uh, before so is, is that what you mean when you talk about mileage do you think that sort of point for point somehow galo is the kind of language that that, that brings more challenges just because of what has or hasn't been studied in the past uh,
1: I think that's that's part of it another part of it is um, the fact that uh in this part of the world there has been relatively few influences from um the major typological zone languages so for example it's not adjacent to mandarin chinese it's not adjacent to hindi it's not adjacent to russian it's not adja- you know languages that have uh you know strongly influenced and conditioned the development of other languages um these uh, Eastern Himalayan languages seem to have been relatively, relatively isolated. So I'm talking about a period of centuries, not, not millennia. So you're uh,
0: literally talking about geographical isolation where they haven't yeah. come under influence from these powerful... And so
1: there have been a lot of internal developments which are relatively easy to unravel. Um, so the language itself yielded it. Um, well, it, it, it was more amenable to the kind of investigation, which is you know, internal reconstruction that I wanted to do in order to sort of see the internal changes that the language went through. Um, and the, the categories that I think result from this um, type of development are likely to be different from the categories that we're used to seeing. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the categories that we're used to seeing when we see them again, it's because the same sort of thing has happened. You know, to find the different categories, we need to find a case where something different has happened—a a, a language situation where you know something different has happened in its development, in its evolution. And I think we find those cases in these relatively isolated parts of the world. We might find them in other cases as well, but that's the place to look.
0: Right. Um, I'm I am I, I'm not sure whether we can get into any of the kind of specifics. Of this you know, uh, s- uh, clearly, with the grammar of a language like Galo or any language, there's so many things that you sure. might want to talk about. Um, but you know, is there something about Galo grammar, an example that you th- that comes to mind that yeah. would would be sort of one of these c- categories that you think essentially there hasn't been a, a yeah absolutely. A lot
1: of so there uh, there's a few sort of um, that I could mention, but the one I'll focus on I think is um, since I've already mentioned mainland Southeast Asian languages is. Um, is uh, these things I've, I called predicate derivations, I think, a few sentences ago. Um, the uh, um, uh, situation that we have in the predicate structure, in the verb structure, if you like, um, in which we have, in second position, these morphemes that, um, that give a lot of uh, interesting information, uh, add a lot of interesting information to the verb. So things like the manner of the verb, the result of the verb, the direction of the verb, if it's a motion verb or something else. Um, it changes the number of participants a verb can have um, the accion starts so it makes it durative or you know repetitive or things like that um, okay not, not very strange lots of languages have things like that um, but they don't have 400 of them um, in the second position in your verb stem I mean I have never seen that before I mean, I've seen something some things that are similar in in um, in uh, the Pacific Northwest of the United States in particular, you get um, something similar to that in these bipartite stems. Um, but this was just off the charts and I didn't know what I was looking at, right? Um, I th- th- said, so this is serial verb construction, are these serial verbs? And But they're not verbs because you cannot take them out of the word and ask a speaker what they mean. They don't have a meaning like that. Um, they're um, uh, if, if I'm speaking a language like Thai and I have a um, You know, an aspect, a spectral morpheme in second position, maybe it's the verb you to stay. Um, I can ask a Thai speaker, what does you mean? And he can tell me, well, it means to stay, it means to live or whatever. There's no problem with that. There's no ambiguity about it. In Gallo, I simply cannot do that. It does not happen. It does not work. That's so people just don't recognize any... They don't recognize it as an utterance. It's just yeah. like I'm pulling a bunch of phonology out of the w- word and trying to do something linguisty and tricky about it. It's not you know, something they have in mind.
0: But clearly when they hear it in context or they when know they, they it produce means. it, they yeah. th- th- it has a meaning.
1: Absolutely. Um, and it's hard to make an English analogy because we don't have a whole lot of morphological complexity like that. But, you know, um, it's you could... M- somewhat compare it to the derivational morphemes that we have in English and other European languages where, you know, we use them. We don't necessarily think about um, what it means. But if if we take it off, we can say, oh, yeah, well, it probably means something like this. It has this effect on the word.
0: Like uh, Lee in quickly.
1: Yeah, lean quickly, or un and unbelievable, right. or, or ubble and unbelievable, something right. like that. We can right. we can pull it off, and yeah, I mean, a, a reflective speaker can analyze it and tell you something about it, mm-hmm. but that's not something that would happen usually in um, in normal discourse. So it's analogous to that, maybe. Uh, so the size of the systems were just uh, extraordinary, right? Because we're thinking that something that's you know four hundred members should be an open class. It should right. be you know, right? Um but uh, what's the difference between finding another one and realizing that it's an open class? I mean, there are certainly some things that can't go in that position. So uh, we were talking about topographical dyxis. Topographical dyxis also occurs here. So we have, you know, um, uh, motion um, derivations that, that, you know, if you say throw, you can have one that says you're throwing up, one that says you're throwing down, one that says you're throwing on the same topographical level. Now, two of those are homophonous with motion verbs, but the other one is not. And it's the one for going down. So the one for going up in the same level, they're homophonous. So they obviously came from the motion verbs at some point in history. But then one of the motion verbs got replaced and the derivation stayed the same. They were lexically, categorically, se- excuse me, categorically separated, right? Mm-hmm. So they're distinct categories. So they're not verbs. Okay, so are they suffixes? Um, are they affixes, right? Um, are, they, are they compound elements? Are they, uh, what are they? Um, so that was the first paper I wrote about this was root, suffix, both or neither. Um, How do do you come down on one side or the other? What's what's the evidence? And and the conclusion is that you don't. Um, You recognize that they come from lexical uh, roots. They used to be serial verbs. Um, The language went through uh, a particular change, which I won't uh, get into unless you ask me about it. Um, And they've become what they are now, which I'm labeling predicate derivations. It could have another label if somebody preferred one. Some people have called them adverbial suffixes. Some people have called them other things. Um, but uh, what you have is a particular type of linguistic category which exists not only in Gallo but in other languages we've since found in that area. Um, in in uh, Boro and Garo, they occur in almost the same way, non-cognate, but the same sort of structures. And so it seems to be uh, the type of thing a language can have and can have and can hold on to for hundreds of years. So we just hadn't seen it before.
0: Yeah, so this raises, um, I think, a really interesting challenge that's around I guess it's always been around when people have been trying to compare languages and that is whether we should expect the categories we have for describing languages to you know to work and and you know so for example we have subjects and objects in traditional grammar you know we have adjectives in traditional grammar and in the past people have gone out and looked for those things in languages and they've you know, either shoehorn something that's not like that into the category, or they've gone, oh, we actually need a different category, which in a way is what you're kind of yeah. suggesting. Yeah. And at um, at the moment, I you know what I see in, in typology is a big discussion around whether it's even possible to kind of hold on to those type of comparative concepts, hmm. uh, like you know you s- you were talking about suffix and affix, and mm-hmm. you know. We've all kind of had to grapple with these things when describing uh languages. One possibility might be that there really are no truly comparative concepts uh mm-hmm. these are just terms of convenience. these are just descriptive um, uh, you know they're useful for us to be able to talk about language, otherwise you know we can't kind of do our work, but they're really just. You know, figments mm. in a sense of our kind of descriptive imagination. I mean, is that, is that the necessary consequence, do you think? Are you, I mean, do you think that when we say that language X has got suffixes or prefixes, are we essentially, um, you know, we might be confident about that, right? But are we essentially doing the same thing as what you're doing when you call those, that set of 400 things, what did you call them? I forgot. Predicate derivations. Predicate yeah. derivations. Um, that's just a that's just a generic label, by the way. I haven't come up with a proper
1: name for them. But, um, well, that's yeah. my point, though. You could call it anything at all, but, you, right. but
0: your, your only reason for coming up with that, that, that term is, is to say I don't want to say that they're prefixes. Right. I don't yeah. want to say they're suffixes or any of the other available terms. Yeah. So should we all be doing that? Should we all be striving to actually not use the kind of ready-at-hand grammatical categories and instead just... Describe locally for that mm. particular case. You know, using yeah. an ad hoc term, um, what we see.
1: Th- this is a fascinating question, and this—I mean, this is something that um, you know—we, uh, the conversation that's been going on for many decades now. Although you're right, it's it's um, picking up a bit now. Um, <coughs> look, I, I mean, I I think that we could, um, and I can't remember this fellow's name, but there was a linguist in the. Um, the 60s or 70s or something like that, uh, maybe before then, who, you know, a structuralist who would, um, uh, Americanist, who uh, didn't actually label any of his morphological classes. He just, well, he labeled them with, you know, arbitrary, maybe maybe they weren't, yes, something like that. So he just sort of, they they weren't arbitrary in the sense that there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a, what's the word? Um, uh, There was a, Type, I mean, a, type, a typology, and inventory, or hierarchy—how they were organized. There's something. Um, so it wasn't arbitrary in that sense, but it they, the labels could have been anything; could have been done in any way. And so you can do that, of course, but that's not very mnemonic. I mean, it doesn't—we right. uh, don't read that very well as human beings, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> whether or not they work theoretically as linguists. Um, so I think that that would be, you know, a good way of doing it. But the problem with doing that, on the other hand, I mean, even though it's, you know, it's sort of maximally agnostic, and that's a nice theoretical position, maybe the problem with doing that um, is that you're going to miss the similarities between languages, which of course exist, right? Mm. And you're immediately going to start thinking, uh, well, if I'm going to describe a new language, am I going to refer to that guy's grammar and I'm going to use his label at A1B uh, or whatever for, for that morpheme because it's exactly the same thing, you know? So why lose that information, right? And then you decide to do that and then you say, okay, well, it's not exactly the same. It's 90%. So we go around and around in circles should we have a, um, a different label because of that. Um, and look, uh, there's no, there's no answer to this. Um, there's no answer to this. And, and, and the reason why there's no answer is because this is a genuine problem. It's a problem that arises from the nature of the thing itself. Um, it's a problem that the, that the, the, the natural phenomena, uh, give us. Um, and so, uh, we're not going to be able to resolve it, uh, strongly one way or another, um, uh, except to recognize it and do the best we can. And what I mean by that is, uh, to the extent that we have the forces that shape languages uh, acting in the same way, or to a large extent, the same way, on two languages, right? They're going to shape those two languages in similar ways. So, if we have two similar sets of starting points, so let's just take, um, uh, I don't, let's just take the example of topographical dikes, because we were talking about it earlier. Let's just say that um, in, in language A and language B, in completely different geographical parts of the world. They both have relator nouns, or they both have you know something like that that mean uh, up and down and, and across or something like that, and uh, they both have a syntax which is going to put them in a position relative to the noun that is going to you know yield them to s- be susceptible to reanalysis as a um, as a noun modifier, um, and if they both live in montane environments and you know if. whatever other factors that are relevant are also in place, then we're probably going to get uh, topographical diagnosis in demonstrative systems evolving in both of those languages that look identical. Mm. There are probably some cognitive factors that come into play as well. But my point being, to the extent that these these, uh, opportunities that shape and constrain language are the same, the forces that shape and constrain language are the same across two populations, we're gonna get similarities. To the extent that they're different, we're gonna get differences. And uh, I haven't talked about the differences yet, although I could. Um, uh, but um, when we get things that are the same, we're going to want to have the same labels. The key, the, the problem, of course, is they're never going to be 100% the same, mm-hmm. right? So we're always going to, even in the case of topographical diaxis, you know, you'll have one language that does it only for montane topography. And the exact same system in this other language does it also for riverine orientation or mm-hmm. also in orientation relative to one's home village, which is one thing that I haven't talked about.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult to insist that things be exactly the same if you're going to kind of, you know, lump them together. And you never could actually, like any category, whatever it is, is going to have to allow – I mean, that's the nature of categorization, right? It has to allow things that are not the same to be grouped together in some sense. So, you know, whether I say – if I say these are two chairs – You know, they're kind of different in some way. Um, These are two pieces of furniture. They could be radically different, but they're still, you know, it could be a table and a bookcase, Mm. Um, but I can still group them. And the question is, you know, what's my purpose for grouping them or what am I, you know? So there's always a choice of what level of granularity I'm going to tolerate within Mm. my category. And I guess what we're talking about is, you know, am I going to tolerate this difference, this degree of difference between, you know, my these morphemes that I've discovered and just what people call prefixes or infixes mm. or something like that. Um, or am I not gonna tolerate that? And yeah. and, and so th- I guess there's no there's no magic rule for that. Um w- what I was gonna ask you about um coming out of this is kind of really just about the framework that you're working with or that this is a kind of an instance of uh, and I think you've been already really exemplifying that and talking about that to uh, to a large extent. Um, I gather that the kind of framework you're talking about, you're working with, is really all about exactly what you've the kind of thing you've just explained. Where the structure of a language, y- you're just not going to understand it unless you think about how it got the way it is. Oh,
1: absolutely, yeah. So I think I mean this. I mean, it's very important to have a theory of, of language, right? A theory of um, to, to, to understand the phenomena. It's, it's important to have a, a theory of how um, what determines it, how it got to be that way, what causes it, um, how it can be explained. And um, So I think that um, the most productive approach um, that I've found I think is what um, gets called sometimes the functional historical um, approach or the functional historical sort of way of looking at things. And Basically, it's the idea that um, uh, f- form and language has functions, right? And um, that uh, the form ultimately is determined by the way that uh, functions shape form over time. And time is the crucial ingredient there, um, because this isn't something that's just happening right now. Um, the right now, what's happening right now, Will um, shape what happens over time through frequency, through grammaticalization, through um, you know, phonetic uh, loss because of um, uh, efficiency, various other factors, and um, when we can um, when we can explain uh, the way that a particular morpheme is distributed, is behaving now, in terms of its source and in terms of the uh, pressures that have shaped its development over time, then we get a really satisfying understanding of why it is the way it is right now Mm -hmm. why it is that kind of thing with that set of features which I think is a lot more illuminating than if we were to have a theory that sort of said well the reason it is the way it is right now is because there's some magic template or platonic form of that type of thing somewhere uh, in the world or in our our genes or in our brains or whatever it is Um, unless we can of course point to that platonic form and then you know see, okay, well, fine. Um, but uh, uh, when we see um, similarities and differences between these types of forms, when we start comparing them across language, um, to be able to see, okay, well, those differences and similarities came about because of the developments that the different developments um, that they've had over, over time, and similarities in those developments, um, then we can start to characterize them in a way that's, I think, more insightful, and that for me is at least the goal is to develop an insightful characterization of what this form is doing mm. in this language at this point in time in terms of how it got to be
0: that way okay so i mean i'm very sympathetic to that point of view um but i do want to raise a question which i think is you know an interesting challenge to that one so you know this is the classical Uh, distinction you've been talking about between a kind of a so-called synchronic view of of the grammar which describes just all of the structures that you happen to observe right now versus the diachronic view which is the historical evolution of how the the language came to be the way it is and and you've really been opposing those two Um, you know you've been talking about the relationship between those two in the Galo case saying well Mm. you know here's this weird this system that looked weird to me, I hadn't seen a system that looked like this uh, synchronically in terms of its structure, you know, its contemporary structure. um, But I now understand it because I've got an account of how it came to be um, the way it is or, you know, a likely account of how it came to be the way it is. And Mm -hmm. that, that, that explains why it looks the way it does and it explains perhaps why it resembles but is not exactly the same as a system like you know serial verbs or something in another language yeah. so you know i think that's really important and a very powerful way of thinking about language but when i'm a little baby and i get born into a gala speaking village uh i have no access to the history of the language i have no interest in the history of the language but i'm perfectly able to acquire sure. that language and use it and speak it you know so within the space of three or four years um, you know, uh, who knows what the time course is for you know full acquisition of, of galo morphology, but clearly within a sh- short number of years, a child is able to sure. learn the language, have some kind of me- mental representation mm. of it, use that in producing mm. and understanding utterances in the language. So how d- that's a third time scale, mm-hmm. ontogeny or div- lifespan development, whatever you want to call it. How do you think that fits into? this picture?
1: Uh, it just fits in. Uh, they're learning a pattern, right? They're learning sets of inter- interrelated patterns, right? Um, so yeah, sure. That, uh, if, if we look at it um, just on that time scale, I mean, that's the moment in time. That's the the way that the, the data is uh, distributed at that particular time. Yeah, you can you can certainly destri- describe that. Um, but then you're going to be stuck with that same issue that we started talking about which is well what do I call these things that have these particular distributional features and semantic values um, to the extent that we can actually describe them exhaustively Mm. we're still going to be stuck with the labeling problem and we're always stuck with the labeling problem Uh, what is that thing is it the same thing as in this other language or not and how am I going to understand this thing right Um, So we won't be able to make any progress past that point, and maybe we don't want to, and that's fine, Um, uh, but we're not going to be able to make any progress in understanding why it is the way it is, um, uh, developing a more insightful view of of not just that it has that structure, but why it has that structure, unless we um, look into the diachronic dimension, okay? So that's what what we want to do, not as child learners. That's what we want to do as linguists, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, is to understand it from that perspective.
0: So, um, you know, time is getting on. We don't have uh, you know, like to learn a lot more about the language but um, we're running out of time. So I would like to just finish by coming back to something that you raised earlier and and, and, and link it to what we've just been discussing and that is the members of the Gala speaking community that you know, you, you mentioned are heavily involved in the project that you're Engaged in, and they've, uh, you know, been a d- driver in getting you to take on certain challenges and to to meet those challenges and change your orientation, um, to some extent. Hmm. To what extent, you know? So, b- what I'd like to kind of know from you before we finish is really where those collaborations might be headed. Um, you know, in terms of not just the interest in things like the the practical interests in things like i want to be able to write this language down so that i can communicate use social media or use new technologies which you've discussed but you know what about the uh, community engagement in these questions of analyzing the language Hmm. in considering the implications of you know the knowledge that comes from that analysis pointing to relationships between us and maybe other groups or um another point being you know potentially you know inspiring a person to do an analysis on the language or on another dialect of the language so can you mm-hmm. can you tell us something about where you think that community engagement is is headed
1: um, yeah that's a good question so f- to answer that though I have to um, sort of expand the horizon beyond uh, Gallo because um, a lot of the um, a lot of the activity um, has been outside the Gallo community um, in this area Um over the past few years, but what we're finding increasingly is that, at least in the part of the world that I work in, is that uh, tribal people, as they're called in India, um, are um, are gaining access to higher education at um, a rate and depth that probably we w- might not have anticipated five or ten years ago. Such that um, I can point to about you know ten or fifteen. Uh, linguistics MA and PhD students um, who are you know, working right now who are from um, indigenous language communities in this, in this area. Um, so uh, these are people who are going to, um, in most cases, work on their own languages, in some cases uh, work on other languages, but um, are mostly uh, doing this because they're inspired to do something for their language, right? They sort of perceive the value of their language and, and want to do something with it. Um, And so uh, I've been uh, trying to engage these people as much as possible. In addition to uh, community members who might not be studying linguistics, they might be studying other things, they might not even be in universities, but they're still relatively um, engaged and and, and interested. And um, lots of things are starting to happen. Lots of research relationships are being formed. I just finished writing a grant application that had um, three Indigenous linguists on it. Um, I'm saying indigenous linguists, although um, at least a couple of them didn't have a background in linguistics per se, but they're working on their language. Um, uh, So I think that um, people are looking for these kinds of research relationships. And I, um, in a few cases, have gone fairly uh, far with them um, and have gotten a lot out of them. Um, Obviously, well, not obviously. Uh, One thing that I've found, um, it's obvious if you think about it, but I've certainly found this. is that my own understanding of the language changes dramatically when I um, access the understanding of a native speaker who is thinking about it on, you know, the same level that I am, or who is, who is trying to answer the same sorts of questions that I'm trying to answer. Um, when we're talking about these things in the same way, um, the, the sets of insights that they can produce in a short period of time are just mind-blowing, mm-hmm. right? And so that's led to um, uh, some, some papers that I've written with various people and, and it's contributed to other things, um, uh that's something that really enhances my own research processes is, is uh, bringing in collaboration of, of that kind um, and i think another thing that comes out of it is what i might call uh, community activism or community awareness or something like that when you have people in the community who are doing this who are seen to be doing this and when it attracts the attention of um, you know outsiders whether it's you know me or um, or some local workshop that's held or some media thing that happens or whatever, um, people start sort of saying, oh, you know, there's something important going on here. And uh, this is not a part of the world in which people are traditionally, most people at least are, you know, sort of ashamed of their language or feel that there's anything wrong with who they are. On the contrary, I mean, this is a part of the world in which people uh, feel g- pride about their language more than anything else and, re- you know, a real, uh, have an, an emotional investment in and uh, when uh, you get people, uh, populations, who sort of have this, um, this tendency to think this way, and when you uh, have people in the community who are trying to develop skills that are gonna enable them to do something, you know, then you can get this incredible synergy. And, we, and what, we, what, we're, what we're seeing is things that, you know, we couldn't have predicted would have happened um, just a few years ago. Uh, just recently, one of, um, one, uh, one of the people that I just mentioned on the grant that I've um, just finished writing, let's hope we get it, um, just won the LSA's Community, I can't remember the exact title, Community Linguist of the um, Year Award, right? Um, which is, yeah, just an extraordinary accomplishment. And here's somebody who had been working on his own for 20 or 30 years, then uh, eventually, you know, met Scott Delancey and me and Pavel Ozorov and Linda Connorth and um, started getting involved in what we were doing and, um, you know, we're Working with him, and this synergy just started t- propelling his work to another level as well. So, yeah, lots of stuff going on and lots of potential. And I wish, I wish, um, I wish I started doing this earlier. And I wish that um, you know, research was always like this. It's just incredibly fruitful.
0: Well, I'm looking very much forward to seeing how that all plays out, and looking forward to seeing the monumental work of the Gala Grammar and everything else <laughs> emerge. <laughs> it better be monumental. The amount of time it's taken which which it will do soon mark post thank you very much for coming and talking to us
1: thank you Nick